0: Our passage today is Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25.
1: In the days of Herod, king of Judea, here was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years.
0: Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense.
1: And Zechariah was troubled when when he saw him.
0: I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his
1: home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you on this wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. Um, thanks for making the trip out to church and uh, coming out of your food comas, as was said in the, in the welcome today. It's great to see you all. We're starting a new series today called What a Strange Way to Save the World. What a Strange Way to Save the World. And we're going to spend, starting today, the next five weeks, um, journeying through the first two chapters of Luke. And we're going to look at the stories surrounding the birth of Jesus with fresh eyes, and hopefully we'll see... How consistently surprising God is in his work. Now, before we get into the sermon today, I just want to spend one second kind of highlighting what's unique about the Gospel of Luke, which we'll be in for the next five weeks starting today. Uh, Luke is, by uh, we think at least, um, trained to be a doctor, but in his spare time, he was a historian. He traveled around with Paul on a couple of his missionary journeys and. Um, And he is responsible for writing, besides just the Gospel of Luke, that one's easy, also the book of Acts. And the first four verses here in chapter 1 right away point us to why Luke has taken the time to write this, this account. And I'd love to read that for us. This is what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, right away I want to draw our attention just to one thing before we get into the, text for the rest of the text for today. You notice where Luke gets his material he gets his material from eyewitness accounts. This isn't just a story or a, a set of stories that Luke is making up. He's actually interviewed people who saw all these things happen, and he's putting it together in kind of a manageable way with a, with a purpose and a narrative and all that, and he's writing it for this man, Theophilus, but it's kind of an open letter for folks to hear because in the account of the eyewitnesses, we can have certainty of these things. So that's the purpose with which uh, Luke writes this and acts. and That's the purpose that we're going to see come through as we continue on the next five weeks in this text. And so today we start in the orderly account with a story that is not actually about Jesus, at least not directly. We start with a story about the sign that came that was meant to show the world that Jesus was coming. And we're going to see what a strange sign it is. And as I was preparing this message, I got to thinking about our family dog, Toby. Actually, um, she is no longer with us, but she was my family dog starting from when I was really young. And she was also our first dog, which was really clear because we made a lot of rookie mistakes with her. When she was really little, we thought it was so cute that she would bite us. She's like six weeks old, right? She's just playing. It's a golden retriever puppy, six weeks old. How are you going to be mad at this, right? And so she's bounding around and she's biting people and it's hilarious, But as she grew up, our tears of laughter started turning into tears of pain because she got some jaw muscles, right, and it started to hurt. But we had taught her it was funny to bite us. And we made all sorts of mistakes like this. In fact, we managed to communicate to her that every command we gave her was a game. Oh, you want me to come inside? You must mean that you want to chase me around the yard in freezing temperatures and snow. Oh, you're telling me to stop chewing through this telephone cord? You must mean that you want to see how far I can chew through it before you can get me out from behind this couch. Oh, you tell me not to roll around and stuff in the yard and bring it in the house, even though time after time after... I think I have some unresolved issues around this. (laughs) Anyways, here's the deal. We were so used to her not behaving, not responding to our commands when we gave them to her, that on the very rare occasion that she did... It caught us totally off guard. We had just stopped expecting her to obey us. And many of us have experiences like this. It might be other things that you own. Maybe it's your car. You're so used to your car breaking down that on the one time it actually starts and you actually get to your destination, it's a shock to you. It may be your computer the one time that you're so used to it breaking down that the one time it actually boots up on schedule and it actually works the whole time you're working on it that it's a shock to you. You may be so used to your baseball team going season after season after season, not succeeding. I'm, not je- I'm a Cubs fan. I'm not jealous at all, I promise. I'm so happy for the Royals. But you may be so used to these things just not working that when they do, it's a total shock. And some of us, some of us have grown so used to not seeing God act that we've just stopped expecting it. Or maybe we've never expected it in the first place. So much so that when he does it catches us totally off guard. So how can we be prepared to see God act? Well, the good news is, we're not the first people to struggle with this in the history of the world. In fact, the story we're looking at today tells us uh, about a man who had the exact same circumstance, who had stopped expecting God to act. And he learned a lesson the hard way, and here's the lesson he learned. God consistently acts in surprising ways. God consistently acts in surprising ways. If we pay attention to how this man learns this lesson, we might be able to avoid learning it the hard way ourselves. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, um, or turn in your app, I don't know how that works, but go to Luke chapter 1. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's on page 555. And like all good stories, this story starts with a priest walking into a temple. Seems like the beginning to do a bad joke, right? This priest's name is Zechariah. Zechariah was a lot like a pastor. His job was to lead worship services, was to help God's people worship God in the right way. He's married to a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth is his wife. Not only is Elizabeth married to a priest, but her dad was a priest. So all the men in her life are all priests. Her brothers, her, her father, her uncles, grandparents, uh, they're all priests. So these two, not only are they a priest and a priest's wife, priest wife, but... Luke tells us that they are blameless, that they walk before the Lord in all of his commands and statutes. So they're, they're actually good people. And yet, they are without a child. Now, to us, to us, we might not see a connection there. But at this time, at the time Luke is writing this, at the time that Zachariah and Elizabeth are alive, they had this weird cultural thing. It's nowhere in the Bible, but they have this weird cultural belief that the most tangible way God shows how much he likes you is how many kids you have. The more children you have, the more God loves you. The less children you have, the less God loves you. Again, it's a totally weird cultural thing, but it's their community. If you have no children at all, well, then you or your family members have done something so terrible to God that he's punishing you in the worst possible way. Despite the fact that... That this is a priest and a priest's wife who are good people who are walking blamelessly before the Lord. In fact, at the time of this story, it's entirely possible that Zechariah and Elizabeth have all but given up the hope that they'll ever have a son, ever have a child. So, it's on a day like that, that Zechariah is chosen to go and serve at the temple, to lead a worship service. It's funny, the way they actually chose priests to lead a worship service was by casting lots or like rolling dice. It's like if it's an easy eight, it's Zechariah. So that's how he was chosen. And it's really interesting because that's the same way we choose who preaches here on Sunday mornings. Um, So Zechariah is chosen to go and lead the evening prayer service. And actually, this is a pretty simple service. All that happens is the people will kind of gather in the courtyard, and the priest, in this case Zechariah, would go into the holy place, which is a place only priests can go, He's going to burn some incense, kind of bow down and pray to God on behalf of the people outside. It's going to be a short prayer, um, and then he'll get up, he'll go outside, say a blessing over the people, and then they'll leave. Pretty simple, right? The catch is that because there are so many priests, this is probably the only time in his entire life that he'll get to perform this service. It's like imagine a pastor who only gets to preach one sermon in his whole life. Some of you are thinking, well, that might be one too many. But anyways, Zechariah, he gets this one chance to perform this service. And tonight, the night that he goes into the temple, it's anything but simple. Because he burns the incense, bows down to pray, and when he lifts up his eyes, there, standing next to the altar, is an angel. It's like, what are they putting in this incense? I'm seeing angels in the middle of a prayer service, and immediately... Listen to what the angel says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. In other places we know this person as John the Baptist. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And you must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many children of Israel to the Lord their God. And, and listen to this language in verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel shows up in the middle of this worship service, just he and Zechariah, and says, Guess what? It's a boy. Now, I wonder if, if, if we're in Zechariah's season of life. I mean, this, this could be physically impossible for them at this point. And an angel shows up and says, hey, guess what? You're going to have a son. You might respond how Zechariah did. He probably said, um, do you have the right temple? Am I the right priest? I don't, I just want to get on the same page here because that hasn't really been a possibility for a while. Just give me some sort of sign that this is going to happen. What, how can I know that this is going to happen? Legitimate question, right? This guy's really old, his wife's really old, she hasn't had a child yet, why is it going to happen now? Seems like a fair question. Well, apparently it isn't, because listen to how the angel responds. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I really wish Gabe was here to preach this sermon. <laughs> I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Whoa. That seems like kind of a harsh punishment, doesn't it? He asks a simple question. I mean, the worst I ever got when I was growing up was like a month with no driving, but he asks a simple question, and he gets nine months of silence, and then the angel shuts his mouth, which is a terrible punishment for Zechariah and probably... The bigger miracle for Elizabeth, the wife, right? I mean, it's like, you're going to give me a son, I believe you, if you're going to make my husband not talk for nine months. What in the world is going on here? Why? Why is Zachariah receiving such a harsh punishment for such a simple question? Well, the simple answer is that Pastor Zachariah should have known that God is a God who brings some of the most important men in history out of barren wombs. He knows the story of Isaac, one of the fathers, literally fathers, of the whole nation of Israel who was born to his parents Abraham and Sarah when Sarah was 90 years old. He knows the story of Isaac's own children, Jacob and Esau, who were born to his wife, Rebekah, when she had struggled through decades of infertility and barrenness. He knows the story of one of the most important prophets of the Old Testament, Samuel, who anointed King David. He was born to his mother, Hannah, in her later years, after decades of barrenness and infertility, God consistently acts in surprising ways, and Zacharias should know that. But even more important than those is a voice, a message spoken about 400 years before this encounter. If you would, real quick, turn with me over to Malachi chapter 4. It's just on the other side of Mark and Matthew. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the prophet. A prophet of the Lord, so when he speaks, this is God speaking, right? These are the words of God. And listen, listen to how Malachi finishes this word from the Lord. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of of utter destruction. Now, after these words are spoken, these words that are meant to tell Israel, look, I'm coming. I'm going to I'm going to work my plan of salvation for my people. It's going to happen. And and you're going to know it's going to happen because I'm going to send Elijah first. He's going to show up. He's this prophet from way back in the Old Testament. He's going to show up again, and he's going to signal to you that I am coming to do my work. After these words are spoken, God goes silent for 400 years. 400 years. No word from any prophets. No special direction from the Lord. The very next person to speak on God's behalf is an angel named Gabriel standing in a temple telling Zachariah, hey, do you remember the very last thing God said? It's happening right now. It's happening right now. And it's going to start with your son. Check out the the similarity in language here. I I put this on a slide just to help me and and us see that together. In Malachi, God says, I will send Elijah the prophet, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And here's the message Gabriel gives to Zechariah. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Jesus actually gives us a, a definitive statement on this. Uh, Listen to this conversation he has with his disciples. This is found in Matthew 17. The disciples asked him, asked Jesus, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, they say it because Malachi said it. He, Jesus, answered them, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John, this John whose birth is being foretold right here in our story. I mean, Elijah has come. This moment, this moment that's going to signal that God has entered history, this once in a history of the world thing is going to happen. God is bringing about his plan of salvation. It's happening now. That thing that prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet told them would come, it's coming right now in this generation. And the one person who knows about it can't say a word. What a strange sign that after 400 years of silence, the sign God gives is silence. But God consistently acts in surprising ways. So, so why silence? I mean, if this is going to be the first sign, doesn't it seem kind of counterintuitive that the sign to proclaim God's coming and God's work is silence? Why? why is Zachariah being disciplined in this way? Well, the parents among us will have good insight to this. As Courtney and I prepare for the coming of our son, Eli, we have that conversation you've got to have. How are we going to discipline our son? Um, not that he's going to need it. But, you know, got to talk about it. So when bad behaviors come up, you have to help your children see that they need to put off those bad behaviors. And the best discipline in those times, the best discipline in those times, it goes after not just the behavior, but also the root cause, the underlying cause of that behavior. And that's how God deals with us. Look, the fact, the fact that Zachariah misses the significance of this message is actually kind of astonishing if we think about it. This guy's a priest. This guy memorizes the Bible. This guy's job is to know the character of God so that he can lead the people of God in the right worship of him. And yet, he misses it. Why? Why is the only thing he can think about when this great message comes that God is doing this thing, this history-altering thing, the only thing he can think about is this one little human reason why it might not work. Here's what I think it is. I think that Zechariah got so caught up in his routine of priesting that he missed the very thing the routine was supposed to lead him to. I think, I think that he spent so much time year after year after year praying for a son and no son, that he spent year after year after year praying for a Messiah and no Messiah, that at the end of the day he just stopped expecting God to act. He just stopped expecting God to act. I mean, when Gabriel shows up and says this to him, his response is, well, it would take a miracle for us to have a baby at this age. Yes, Zechariah, thank you, it would. That's kind of the point of the message, right? But he has stopped expecting God to act because he was so caught up in his routine, so caught up in his busyness, so caught up in praying for things that he never saw happen, he's just stopped expecting God to act. So the question we ought to ask ourselves this morning is this. Have we stopped expecting God to act? Have you stopped expecting God to act? Look, maybe you find yourself stuck in a situation this morning. Maybe you've been praying for that family member or co-worker or a neighbor or friend, praying for them to to know God, praying for them to stop doing X or start doing Y. and, And after all this time of praying... They just haven't changed. And you wonder, is God even going to act? Maybe you find yourself in a relationship, in a neighborhood, in a job, in a family, where you so badly want to see reconciliation happen. You so badly want to see God move for the salvation of his people, but he just isn't. And after years of praying and hoping, you just have stopped expecting God to act. This is especially possible for us if we've lived through a couple of Christmases. We're moving into a season now of Advent that's full of wrapping presents and shopping on Black Friday and Small Business Saturday and Cyber Monday and whatever other day they're going to come up with this year. We're so busy trying to wrap up the end of the year, get it, at at work and at school. We're so busy going to dinners, hosting dinners, all the noise, all the busyness, all the routine that if left to our own devices there's a very good chance that we could miss just how significant this Christmas season is. If our text tells us anything today, it ought to tell us that God is real serious about us not missing the meaning of Christmas. So, I want to offer us a principle. A principle in two parts that will help us not only understand and appreciate the significance of the Advent season, but also give us eyes to see that God acts consistently in surprising ways. And here it is. The first part is this. The first part is this. I have to look at my notes. If we've stopped expecting God to act, then we've forgotten who he is. If we've stopped expecting God to act, then we've forgotten who he is. Look, it's one thing to believe that God is capable of, of doing these works. Zechariah has no problem saying, yes, God is capable of bringing children out of barren wombs. He has those passages memorized of when God has already done it. It's one thing to believe God is capable of doing something. It's another thing to expect him to do it. Here's how this bears out in my life. Um, Courtney and I have a number of friends and family who don't know Jesus yet. Now, I believe, I believe that God is capable of saving them. I believe God wants to save them. It breaks my heart to think of a scenario where they don't meet Jesus and understand what he has done for them to save them. So I commit myself to praying for them. God, change their hearts. Surround them with people who know the gospel, who preach the gospel. God, help them to see that they need your forgiveness. But after a time, after weeks, after months of praying, there's no change. And then my prayer life kind of falters. And I show that I just have stopped expecting God to act. God is all about saving people. That's what he came here to do. That's what we're celebrating here at the Christmas season. But if left to the routine, if left to the busyness, if left to the noise, we can easily stop expecting God to act. And if we stop expecting God to act, we've forgotten who he is. So this is the second part. If that's the case, then silence gives us space to remember. If we stop expecting God to act, we've forgotten who he is. Silence gives us space to remember. Silence is the key to remembering what God has already done for us. It's the gift that was imposed on Zechariah. It's the gift that is offered to us. Look, I'm not saying an angel is going to show up and tell you, you know, which job to take or who to marry or you know anything like that. But I am saying... And when we take time in silence before God, when we create space in the midst of all of our busyness to hear God, we can know him, we can remember that he is a God who acts. So as we move into the ad, this Advent season, I want to offer us an opportunity to practice that. So here's, here's what it is. Here's what I think is a good first step. We mentioned already today that our new Open Here bookmarks are, are over, available at the guest table. This is our, just our daily reading plan. It keeps us in sync with the, the passages we'll hear preached on Sunday morning. You can also go to openhearbible.com. You can sign up for texts or email alerts. There's all sorts of ways to get to this. Here's what I want to encourage us to do. This will tell us the sermon that will be preached next weekend, which is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. I would encourage you sometime this week to sit down and read that passage. And I know, here we go. Sit down and read that passage. And then take 30 minutes. Take 30 minutes to be silent and listen to God. Take 30 minutes to put on the noise-canceling headphones and block out all the things that go on outside in the world. Take 30 minutes to turn off the TV, turn off the music, turn off the radio, just to stop talking and listen To God, take 30 minutes to consider what He has said in His Word. Now, I realize the significance of what I'm asking, so I actually tried it this week. This is new for me too. Being silent before God, I don't even know what that looks like. So, I tried it this week, 30 minutes, and let me tell you how it went. About 10 minutes in, I thought, "This is really dumb." I cannot keep my mind focused at all. I need to quit right now. I need to go rewrite my sermon and come up with a new application so I don't have to tell everyone that I failed at being silent. And then in about 25 minutes, God laid something on my heart, showed me something that I have that's inconsistent with his character. And we had the sweetest time of prayer, confessing my sin, working on my sin, trusting in Christ alone for my salvation, and I would have never had that if I would have gone about my day being a pastor and not made space to hear from God. However you can work it out, however you can plan it, put it in your calendar, tell people you're going to do it, get some accountability, you're never going to drift into this kind of stuff, but however you can get yourself 30 minutes alone with God just to be silent, I'd encourage you to do that this week. Okay, so the end of the story, and then I'll be done. Zechariah finishes his priestly duties and goes home, now mute, totally unable to speak. And he and his wife Elizabeth get pregnant, just like the angel said. And for the next nine months, Zechariah waits in silence for the birth of his son, contemplating the goodness of the Lord, what he is doing for his family, what he is doing for the nations so when that day came and John was born, listen to the first words out of Zechariah's mouth. He says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, after his routine is broken, after all of his busyness has lost its power to crowd out God, does he remember who God is? Does he remember that God has acted and is acting on behalf of his people. If you embrace this time of silence this week, if you take time to hear from God, submitted to his word, here's what you'll hear. You'll hear that God loves you deeply. You'll hear that God would do anything, absolutely anything to be with you. You'll hear that God became a human being, and not just a human being, but a fragile little baby in a barn. You'll hear that God lived a perfect life so that you could be given that righteousness. You'll hear that God died a perfect death working the forgiveness of your sins. You'll hear that God rose again to the eternal life that he offers you. And you'll hear, if you respond to that, that God is coming back for you. That's what God has done. That's what our God who acts has done for us. He did it in history and it started it started at Christmas. Now, we wouldn't be super great leaders and pastors if um, we spent this whole time talking about how important silence is and then spent 75 minutes in our service with noise, right? So, just to break the ice, and we'll do it together. We're going to take two minutes now just to spend time in silence. We're not going to play any music. We're not going to do anything like that. We're just going to sit in silence before God and reflect on what we've heard today from his word. So let me pray, and then we'll do that together. Holy Spirit, just as the song that we sing says, we invite you to speak to us. So as we come before you in silence, Lord, we recognize that your presence is in this place, among your people whom you have redeemed. Speak, O oh Lord. Just before Jesus ascended back up into heaven, he left us a meal to help us in this task of remembering what he's done for us. As we gather together at the table and take the bread, we remember the body of Christ that was broken to pay for our sins. And as we take up the juice, we remember the blood of Christ that was poured out to wash us clean. Here's the deal. Uh, If you're new to Christ's community, this is how it works. You don't have to be a member here at our church to take part in this. We do ask that Jesus be your Lord and Savior. If that describes you, then you'll come down one of the two aisles, go around to the outside to one of our two communion serving stations, gather in groups of four to six, take a piece of our gluten-free bread, and dip it in the juice, and then you'll partake together. If you have a child with you who is yet to um, make a profession of faith, we ask that they refrain from partaking in the table, but our servers would love to offer a blessing over them in the same way that Jesus did. This is meant to be a time not of hurry, but of reflection. So if you need it for prayer, for more silence, please take that time. But before we come, let us remember that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it